0: Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. You know, once upon a
1: time, foolish and incorrect statements used to be limited to the city gate, to the center of town square, where people would gather to talk and to exchange ideas. And today, just about anybody can log on to a computer and post their ideas for virtually the entire world to see and hear. And, you know, that's fine. I strongly believe in the First Amendment and people's right to make even incorrect or outlandish statements. And I, perhaps like you, use the internet to check on various items of news and personal interests, and like me, perhaps as a Christian, when you do so, you you take the chance that inevitably you're going to be confronted with the never-ending articles and commentary which in one way or another present misinformation regarding Christianity. And, you know, the fact is that this fallen world is a virtual cottage industry whose main product seems to be producing Repeated and tired out disparaging remarks and straw man arguments, which are either outright attacks or are designed as enlightened philosophical meandering. Well, usually I find that, generally, with most other topics, it's easiest to just simply ignore the noise. But when people present erroneous and misleading information about the Bible, which sets a potential stumbling block for the unwary and the young Christian, I feel that scripture makes it clear that for those who know the truth, it is our mandate to verbally defend the gospel and the spiritual welfare of the saints. In this case, I feel led to respond to what is presented because either the topic being presented represents classic material which are typically the types of issues being circulated and recirculated by those who wittingly or unwittingly fall into the camp of the atheist, the skeptic, and or the humanist, otherwise known as Mr. Ash. In this case, I stumbled across a 30-something couple with a blog named Ash and Pre, who posted an article by, forgive me if I mispronounce this name here, Kodatu Kodatuwaku, entitled, 10 Controversial Questions About Christianity That You Wouldn't Dare Ask a Christian. Well, first of all... I'm happy to learn that there are those who apparently would not, quote, dare ask a Christian, unquote, some supposedly, quote, unquote, controversial question. But in reality, the history that I'm familiar with is that these questions have been asked repeatedly and have been asked repeatedly in one form or another for decades. My experience is that I'm not aware that there has been some historical hesitancy to ask. In fact, not only do they ask, they ask repeatedly, and they often tend to ask uh, with a high level of sarcasm. Secondly, if any of these questions are quote-unquote controversial, It is only because of the fact that the author fails to understand that there are two basic worldviews with which we can ask and answer these and any questions. The first, as I have so often stated, is where we begin with man as the center and authority for everything, and the second is where we begin with the biblical worldview— And God is the ultimate authority of meaning, morals, ethics, truth, reality, beauty, and significance. Now, the controversy is which is correct. But let's not kid ourselves. If God is true, then truth begins with God, it continues with God, and it ends with God. The confusion arises whenever man attempts to force humanistic values and logic and argue that God is constrained to our values. However, if we want to ask questions and we want true answers, then we need to abandon the idea that an infinite God is supposed to bend himself to the whims and desires of finite, fallen man. Let's look at the statements and or questions posed in this article and address them according to a biblical worldview. In the opening statement of the article, the author states, quote, Christianity, like any other religion, is a tapestry woven with diverse threads of beliefs, interpretations, and practices. For those who follow this faith... Asking questions about their religion is a natural part of deepening their understanding. However, there are often queries that remain unspoken, hesitating on the tip of our tongues because we fear they may come across as impolite or contentious. In this list, we dive into a social media thread where people ask asked a fascinating array of questions about Christianity that you might not typically ask a Christian face-to-face. Here, the author conflates the history of humans claiming the title of Christianity as religion, either individually or corporately, with the revelations and instructions given by God's Word, the Bible, as understood in context from cover to cover using proper rules of exegesis and hermeneutics. The analogy, as I used once before, would be that of the $100 bill. When the $100 bill was first designed and printed, it was understood to be authentic and true to have a value in the amount of $100. Now, Because of sin, various people spent time and energy making counterfeit copies which are as close to the original as is possible. In reality, the counterfeit copies are worthless, untrue, and not authentic. But no one ever says that because there are thousands of counterfeit $100 bills that the authentic $100 bills are untrustworthy, non-existent, or worthless. We don't say that both the authentic and the counterfeit are a quote-unquote tapestry woven with diverse threads of beliefs, interpretations, and practices, unquote. No, we can study and learn the various details and benchmark elements which define an authentic $100 bill. We don't take into consideration people's feelings about what constitutes authenticity, nor do we care about the consensus. It doesn't matter that there are a thousand or ten thousand people who are confused or convinced that a counterfeit bill is authentic. It is not the details and benchmarks of authenticity are created, maintained, and defined by the authority of the U.S. Mint. Just so, the details and authenticity of Christianity are created, maintained, and defined by God's Word, the Bible, and ultimately by God who inspired it. More importantly, as I have so often stated, Simply placing a label with the word quote-unquote Christian printed on a donut does not turn a donut into a Christian. Speaking or screaming the word quote-unquote Christian repeatedly does not by itself magically transform someone into a follower of Christ. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 22 and 23, Jesus himself informs us that there will be people who call him Lord, which means that they will identify as quote-unquote Christians, and they will actually prophesy, cast out devils, and do wonderful works. Yet, Jesus says he will tell them to get away from him since he never knew them. So, to put it simply... It's not the labels. It's not the appearance, nor is it the fervent claims to be quote-unquote Christian. It is the reality of the heart which can only be evaluated alongside the complete word of God, time, and ultimately God's knowledge. But, be there one or a million who claim who then fall or fail to be christian does not mean that there are not those who are god's chosen elect who are in reality christian so what are these quote unquote controversial questions which we don't dare ask christians Number one, quote, do you believe all your non-Christian friends are gonna go to hell? How do you reconcile this with people should be allowed to believe what they like? Unquote. Answer, well, first of all, the question functions under the unfounded assumption that the revelation in God's Word regarding creation, fall, redemption, and restoration are simply an unfounded, quote-unquote, belief, rather than a reality. So, sure, if we are all simply exercising an unfounded belief in a book called the Bible and imposing it as the only way to avoid a place called hell, and we are all condemning others and refusing to validate alternative unfounded beliefs, then that would be hypocritical and judgmental. It would be like condemning people for using mustard versus ketchup on a hot dog as the correct way to be a decent human being. But... If we are talking about reality and truth, then facts are facts, even if we don't like the facts. So let's use this analogy. Assume we have a large passenger ship sailing across the ocean. Assume that there are thousands on board. Assume that I know the chief inspector responsible for building and inspecting the boat. Assume that the boat was originally perfect and seaworthy, but according to the inspector, an enemy who loves to kill, steal, and destroy people has drilled numerous holes in the hull below the waterline which are not visible to the passengers. Assume that the inspector has revealed with all certainty that this boat will sink further assume that this boat is otherwise comfortable with hundreds of fun things to do assume that the only way to get off this boat is to get into the lifeboats but the lifeboats are hidden out of view and cannot be seen by the passengers Assume there is one boat manual written by the inspector which clearly tells everyone that the boat is sinking and the only way to avoid drowning is to get into the lifeboat. Lastly, assume that there are skeptics on the boat who believe that the boat is fine. It's not sinking. And the manual and the lifeboats are a myth and that the inspector is only one of many competing beliefs and theories about the boat. Now, with this hypothetical being established as the facts, let's rephrase the original question to address the boat. Quote, Do you believe all of your fellow skeptic passenger friends who deny the inspector and the lifeboats are going to drown? How do you reconcile this with passengers on the boat who should be allowed to believe what they like, unquote. So you see here, in both cases, the question and answer depends upon the reality and the truth of the matter, not a quote-unquote belief. In both cases, people are free to believe what they want, but reality and truth will prevail. So, in both cases, people are living with the logical consequences of the actions and decisions that they make based upon the beliefs that they have. One choice will lead to life, and the other will lead to drowning and death. So, the only thing that is difficult to reconcile is knowing the truth, and not warning others, and thus contributing to their demise. Now, to put this into context, God created man with an eternal soul, designed for fellowship with God. God desires positive fellowship consisting of faith, trust, confidence, belief, and worship of Him. God does not want coerced, forced, or a fake relationship any more than we do. Consequently, God permits people to rebel, to deny, to refuse Him, and to disbelieve Him. However, since our souls are eternal, and because there are only two realities, mankind is stuck with either eternity with God or eternity apart from God. Now, here comes the rub. God is, in reality, the only source of true joy, contentment, fulfillment, peace, and happiness. Once we make the final choice and God is fully and completely removed from our life on the on Judgment Day, all that is left is darkness, the festering sin which takes the form of sickness, hate, rebellion, anger, sadness, oppression, and all that is considered evil. This fate is the constant state of every moment, without reprieve, without any end, because it is eternal. Like every evil, it continues and increases, because apart from God, there is no force to stay or offset it. There is no companionship there, no fellowship, no friend, no beauty, no hope. Thus, hell, or whatever name you want to give it, is the logical consequence of eternal life separated from God. So, to put it simply, even though I don't desire to see any of my friends separated from God or in being in hell, I have to respect the fact that they bear the responsibility to choose this day whom they will serve. Second question. Quote, Do you think or blame God, unquote. Now, the author further asks to clarify, quote, When something goes well in your life, or something good happens, do you thank God? When something goes bad in your life, or something horrid happens, do you blame God? It always struck me as odd to credit God with being responsible for the good in your life, but then not to see him as culpable for the bad. This question touches upon the age-old practice of attributing life's up and downs to divine influence. It's a paradox that leaves many users pondering, why credit God for the good, but not hold him accountable for the bad? Answer. It depends on your understanding of the true nature and character of God as revealed by His Word. Here, the book of Job is perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, which coincidentally deals with this very dilemma. In summary, the answer that the book of Job gives is that God is perfectly good, but God is also perfectly just, righteous, holy, merciful, and loving. Each and every attribute is 100% perfect. Now, to set the stage for Job, we need to understand that God made all that is, including Adam and Eve, and it was very good. There was no bad or evil until mankind made the choice to sin and abandon God. It was at this point that evil, the bad, and the horrid was a reality due to a fallen creation. So, we give thanks for God and to God for the good that he created and his grace that falls on the just and the unjust alike we place blame upon ourselves, mankind, and Satan for the evil which entered the world via our unbelief and which continues and expands due to our rebellion. We also give thanks that God restrains the full potential of evil presently and that he gave his son to die so that sin would be overturned for those in Christ. Lastly, we give thanks for the assurance of his coming destruction of all sin and evil in his future kingdom. So, the bottom line from Job demonstrates that the unregenerate who do not know God curse God when God does not bring about their desired outcomes. They give themselves congratulations when good things happen. Those who know the Lord understand this world is not our home and that suffering and persecution are our present lot due to sin, Satan, and the world. Those who know the Lord know and trust that God works in this world and this present evil age in the lives of his saints to accomplish his plan of redemption and to glorify himself. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 31 say it this way quote, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So, I thank God for his goodness, mercy, love, kindness, grace, holiness, justice, and righteousness. And I blame myself, sin, rebellion, and Satan for that which is evil. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part two. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor-yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
2: that he has found me Christ the rock is my foundation I will trust in him I will trust